It's the Big Wake Up Call on AM 1280 WBIG. I'm Ryan Gatenby, and uh, our next guest is a music legend. He's the drummer for the Stray Cats. The brand new book is A Stray Cat Struts, My Life as a Rockabilly Rebel. And I am so happy to welcome Slim Jim Phantom to the Big Wake Up Call. Good morning. How's it going, buddy? Well, I am so happy you could join us today, and uh, I just got to tell you, you're one of the most influential musicians in my life, that I became a drummer because my dad was a drummer, and we had a 60s Ringo Ludwig kit in the house, but but I started being a stand-up drummer after seeing you on a Saturday Night Live when I was 10 years old. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> happy, to be, uh, happy to be of service. So, yeah, I hope you'll forgive. I hope it's not typical fan gushing, because as much as I loved you guys, and oh my gosh, did I love you guys with the posters and the t-shirts, but but I didn't just become a fan of your music, that you guys, I wanted to make music because of you guys. And and you're a drummer, and like my book's got some cool stories, it's some, you know, wacky people and crazy adventures, but at the end of the day, it's like the story of a drummer. It's about being the drummer, and we've got a special fraternity, I think, you know? And, and and I believe you're the first member of uh, of the band to write a book. Are, are you the Bill Wyman of, of of the Stray Cats? Are you the one who kept the the diary all these years? Uh, I don't, no, I didn't keep a diary. But you know, usually the drummer is the one that has to keep working. You know, and so yeah. uh, <laughs> I I, you know, I got to go hustle it all up. You know, so but it it was a fun pro- uh, you know process. And then you know the Stray Cats were pretty. Um, uh, uh, you know, outgoing bunch, but within the band, I was the guy that really kind of embraced the whole the whole life. I was, you know, I was the one that wanted to go out more and meet more people, and I lived on Sunset Strip, and why? That's where I live, you know. That's and that was my, you know. So I was that guy. So um, I wanted to, you know, write it all down while most of the brain cells are all still still <laughs> clicking. Well, I, I had so much fun reading the book. Just uh, incredible stories of your life and uh, and your music, and oh my gosh, just uh, intersecting with your peers. Are there are there any rock legends you didn't cross paths with? It's uh, it's unbelievable uh, the people you know. Well, again, like in your life, that's kind of the life that we had, and it was like that's what happened that day. It wasn't. I don't think you can plan to go and meet certain people. I think it has to happen organically and. And that's the uh, that's the, the other part of the story is that all like, my life has happened you know on a daily basis like that's what happened that day and that's who you bumped into and that's who you um, had a drink with and that's who you found that you had a uh, like a connection with um, uh, you know whether it's girls or boys you know like uh, guys in bands or you know the couple of you know cool cool chicks that have crossed my path over the years it's uh, it has to happen organically because you can't plan it and. Um, um, I've met just about everyone that I wanted to meet. A few guys had gone before I got a chance to meet them, but um, uh, I can't think, you know, Buddy Rich I would have liked to have known, John Lennon I would have liked to have known, you know, there's a few of them, but, uh, but I think we've done pretty good. And, like, again, we've managed to meet a few people who have wound up becoming longtime pals. Well, you've you've got a photo in here, and uh, but boy, if I were in this, it would be wallpapered everywhere. All right, so I've got uh, two thirds of the Stray Cats, three fifths of the Traveling Wilburys, Dwayne Eddy, and uh, and you've got Dave Edmonds from Rockpile. And uh, that, if that's not uh, a who's who of my favorite musicians, that uh, that that's the standout uh, photo of all time for me. Yeah, that was um, uh, at Dave Edmonds' show at the Palace in L.A. Um, 
and I think it was the beginning of when they were doing that Traveling Wilburys thing, and I had become friendly with George because we had done, I had been the drummer on a TV show that was, um, that was honoring Carl Perkins. Right. And I was lucky enough to ask to be the drummer on it by Dave Edmonds, and George was a guest on it, and again, he and I, I, I he liked me, and I, 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 I was, um, I had a nice, uh, he was my pal, George Harrison, and I, we, you know, got to know him very well. We like stayed in touch over the years, and um, and that was uh, all the people who went to Dave Edmonds' show, and that was one of the times I met Dylan, who's like he's a very mysterious guy and really the greatest ever, I think. And you can't really just plan to meet Bob Dylan; it, it has to happen in an, an organic way. And I, I, I was hoping they would ask me to be the drummer in the Traveling Willowberries, but but now I get it. They got Jim Keltner, who was part of their gang. And you have a, a, a whole chapter. <laughs> you have a, a whole chapter in there talking about uh, your relationship with George, and, and I just thought it was lovely. And, and so many people that I've talked to have similar stories about George, and I feel like we need to compile all of your stories into a, a real biography of George Harrison because the main one out there seems to have been written by a guy with an axe to grind. But it was just great to see what what a sweet guy he really was. Yeah, I never talked too much about it because I because I was afraid of sounding crazy, but like every now and again, I, the phone would ring. Maybe it was every year, maybe two years would go by, and, and the phone would ring, and the voice would say, is this Slim Jim from the Stray Cats? And I would, it was my home number, and I would say, yeah. And he said, well, this is George Harrison from the Beatles. <laughs> and I would say, uh, hi, hi, George. And he said, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, nothing now. <laughs> he said, you want to come over to the hotel? A couple of guys coming over. We're going to, oh, okay. And I'd go meet him and would have dinner and I'd, or I'd go to his hotel and there'd be like a race car driver there. And, you know, there'd just be, and we'd just hang out. And then I wouldn't speak to him for a few years. And I'd cross paths with him somewhere else. He said, you want to go have lunch? Yeah, okay, George, sure. And I think he knew he was blowing everyone's mind at the same time as he liked to hang out. He was a, he was a, you know, he was a pal. And when I saw the, um, the very good documentary about George, have you seen that? Martin Scorsese made a documentary about oh, yeah. George. Yeah. And a few people tell a similar story. Like, he, in every town he went to, he had a bunch of guys, and sometimes he'd call you, sometimes he'd call the other. But he had a relationship like that. He seemed to be, you know, do that. He seemed to like people and like hanging out. And I was just, really honored again to be part of that little gang well jim it is so great to talk to you and uh, you know from you guys bringing rockabilly uh back to america all those years ago i think it's stronger than ever especially in chicago there's a huge uh rockabilly scene there's just something about uh, a guitar bass and uh, drums that uh, just just speaks to us it just it just hits us right in the heart yeah i i think chicago i've been there many times and uh I've been to Wrigley, and I'm pulling for the Cubs this year. I got to admit, you all know, right. I'm a lifetime Yankees fan, but I think it might be your guys' year. And um, I, you know, I've spent time in Chicago with this recording there, and I, I'd, it's a real rock and roll blues town. It really is. Um, and uh, I, 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 um, I hope to come back. I'd like to play more. I know some good musicians in that area, and um, I, um it's always been a good town for the Stray Cats. Like, a few towns are always a little bit above. Like, if you're doing a club in one town, you'd be doing a theater. In, and Chicago was always that town for us. It was a little bit bigger, and the people got it a little bit more. Well, we, we love you here, and, uh, and I love the new book. It's uh, A Stray Cat Struts, My Life as a Rockabilly Rebel. 
by our guest, uh, Slim Jim Phantom. Well, it has been an honor to uh, have you call in. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me, buddy. Back on the big wake-up call, AM 1280, WBIG. I'm Ryan Gatenby, and my next guest is a legendary drummer and a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. His autobiography, Punk Rock Blitzkrieg, My Life as a Ramon, is available now. And, of course, it's Marky Ramon. Welcome to the show. Hi. How are you? It's great to talk to you, and uh, loving the book. As a fellow drummer, it was fun to read that we shared a similar experience of wanting to take drum lessons so badly as a kid, and you want to rock out, but then they just want to teach you the flams and the paradiddles. Yeah, yeah they, want to, they want you to go by the book, and uh, I felt it was necessary for a little bit, but then after a while, uh, I wanted to play my own way, you know, so it did help a little when I was in a marching band in high school. But, uh, you know, everything is in paradiddles, double-stroke rolls, nine-stroke rolls, etc. You know, you got to put your own feel into it, too. Did you ever wind up incorporating a flam tap on any, any of uh, your recordings? <laughs> At least a five-stroke uh, roll. That's useful. Well, yeah, my first band that I was in called Dust, it was a heavy me- one of the first heavy metal bands in America, and I incorporated all those rudiments in, in that band. And then, uh, yeah, it was interesting to learn about uh, your your earlier history and uh, your your insight on the music business in the the late '60s, early '70s. It was still possible for a band. You could record a demo in your basement and get signed to a record deal. You wind up with a two record deal uh, just before your 18th birthday. Uh, yeah, we uh, were still in high school and. Uh we uh, rehearsed in a basement, and a friend of ours had a uh, two-track Sony tape player. Brought it down to the basement, and we just positioned the mics properly, and that's how we got the demo, presented it to Kamasutra Records, which eventually turned into Casablanca Records, and we, uh, we were amazed. We were uh, teenagers, and we got our first deal. And uh, we put out two uh, heavy metal albums, I guess uh, one of the first bands in America that were into that genre of music. Now, was the, the New York rock scene, was it, was it smaller then, or just the music scene in general? Because it seems like every band you guys were always out playing, you knew each other, or you went out and supported your other bands, and we just don't really see that kind of community these days. Uh, yeah, we, we, we were all friends, we were all different, so there, there wasn't any re- real competition. We all had a different sound. There was the Ramones, Talking Heads, Television, Patti Smith, Richard Helb, uh, uh, Blondie, and uh, we were all friends. Uh, but it was a tight-knit community there because CBGB's was really the only place that we could play in Max's Kansas City, which was, uh, was their competition. But at the time, uh, you know, disco was big, stadium rock was big, and um, we were in this little hole in the wall called CBGB's, and uh, we were all there, I guess, uh, three, four times a week. So you develop relations, and that's what we did. And well, the discussions would be about music or, you know, where you'd be playing next and, uh, you know, things like that. So we were, we were friends. Well, and, and I think that musicians today 
should well should definitely start uh, new scenes where they are and and communicate a lot more together socially, not just on the internet, but go out and meet and you know exchange ideas and things like that. You know, it's frustrating trying to build a scene like that because you'll play some shows and invite other bands, and people will come to see one band and then leave, and then the bands that play before you will also leave. When you're trying to build this network and and support each other, I don't know why it's so difficult these days. Well, well, yeah. I mean, uh, there are a lot of curiosity seekers who who will be around for the first bands before the um, uh, headliner. But that's the whole thing. You never know when that great group's going to come along, and you can miss out if you don't stay around and watch these these groups that are opening up the uh, set uh, the night for the uh, uh, main attraction. But uh, that that was the charm of CBGBs. Uh, we we were we were always curious to know what uh, any other band had to present uh, to the audience when we were there. You know, and because you're familiar on the scene and and having a relationship with these other bands, that when there's a, an opening in the Ramones, that's how you're invited to join. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, Tommy Ramone, the uh, first drummer who was in a band for three and a half years decided he just wanted to produce no more touring and decided to tell the other guys to get me in the group uh they always used to come see my group play before there was the ramones and uh, they liked my my drumming so uh that's what they, it was that simple and then Didi met me our bass player at the bar at cbgb's and uh, popped the question when i joined the group and i just said well Let's do a small rehearsal and let's see where it goes. And it worked out fine, and that was it. I ended up uh, doing um, an album called Road to Ruin of theirs, and the first song I recorded was I Want to Be Sedated. I think that was pretty successful right there. <laughs> yeah, now more than ever, it's accepted. <laughs> And then uh, you have some uh, amazing stories in the book about working with uh, Phil Spector on yeah. uh, End of the Century. And, you know, we'd all heard the story of uh, how Phil worked in the studio, and there's the famous uh, legend of him firing a gun at a John Lennon session, and you confirmed that he had uh, pistols in the studio with you guys. Yeah, he did, but he never pointed them at us. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the only four Ramones were allowed in the studio, and his engineer, that's how he was. Phil was very protective over his work. But uh, he had a license to carry, so did his bodyguard, and he put them down. You know, he didn't point them. It's just you're not going to carry them in a studio all day. So, you know, I, I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, but that, that was false. That was just an exaggeration. And it was nice to, uh, you know, kind of find about that. And then uh, you and Phil maintained uh, a relationship for years. It seems like yep. you guys just really understood each other. Yeah, well... You know, we were from the outer boroughs of Manhattan. You know, he's from the Bronx, and uh, I'm from Brooklyn. And eventually, he did move to California, but it never leaves you. You know, so uh, we, when I when I was still drinking wine, I, we, we would drink wine together. He would come to my hotel room after the day's work in the studio. We'd go out to to the Sunset Strip and uh, frequent the clubs there, and and have a have a great time and he would tell me stories about uh, other uh, uh, recordings that he made with other artists and he was a, for me he it was a joy to be around you know um, I guess we just hit it off there was a chemical reaction you know and I stayed with him until he went away I went to court even 
to, to be there and to see what, what was going to develop. And then maybe this is a little too inside, but uh, a couple albums later, I just love your story. You have a conflict with uh, a producer wanting to use the gated reverb sound on your drums. Oh. And what was it with the 80s and not wanting drums to sound like drums anymore? And you understand what I mean, right? Cause you're Absolutely. Well, at the time, that was the style, and which I despised because they were trying to emulate a drum machine. Yeah. <laughs> so that doesn't coincide with the sound of the Ramones. And I uh, confronted the producer, and uh, he wouldn't listen. So I said, I'm out of here. And it was one song I didn't do on the album because I was so disgusted hearing the playbacks that I didn't do it. So they got a studio drummer to complete it. But there were good songs on the album. Uh, I just can't listen to it. I just uh, feel it's so fabricated and phony sounding. You want to go back to those 80s albums ever and just kind of strip the reverb off of it? Oh, well, I love to. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. It's the tuning of the snare. What, what he wanted, tune it as low as you can. Uh, so you don't get a rim shot or any kind of tone off the shell of the drum. And that's what he wanted. I, I just didn't get it. And then I realized what he was going for, you know. Punk Rock Blitzkrieg, My Life as a Ramon, is uh, now in stores, written, of course, by our guest, uh, Marky Ramon. Marky, thanks so much for being on the show today. I love the book, and it was great to talk to you. Thank you. Anytime. It's the Big Wake Up Call. I'm Ryan Gatenby, and time for my next guest. He is a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as the drummer for The Doors and the author of a new book, The Seekers, Meetings with Remarkable Musicians and Other Artists, and it is my pleasure to visit with John Densmore. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Chicago. Yeah. You know, when we got signed to the record label and they had the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, we were very happy. Yeah. Chicago group. And then, of course, uh, you know, your your bandmate, uh, Ray Manzarek, a Chicago guy. So there's our connection right there. DePaul University. Yeah. John, I, I just want to tell you how much of an influence you are on me as a drummer that, you know, you have a light touch, you've got that flowing jazz feel, you have Latin rhythms, and then yet you're still locked in with a rock beat. It's, it's what I'm always striving for as a drummer. Oh, that's great. Thank you very much. You know, I uh, did Questlove's podcast, The Drummer for the Roots, and I was saying yeah. to him how he, put, he played so relaxed. And, uh, that, yeah, I think that's the key. I mean, I still play with traditional grip, and, and my fellow drummers kind of look at me weird, but uh, I don't know. I'm trying to connect to the, to the jazz artist inside me. Stuart Copeland plays traditional. Yeah. But uh, a fascinating book, John. So many conversations you had with your former bandmates, other great musicians and artists. Did you have in the back of your mind that, you know, one day these stories are going to make a great book? No. <laughs> yeah. And just a few a few years ago, I thought, oh, man, I'd like to give a tip of the hat to artists who fed me. And I started writing. And and then over time, uh, I, I, I met Paul Simon and, and Willie Nelson just a few years back, and I thought I'd include them. And, of course, my mom is the first chapter. Right. Because, you know, she's the L.A. woman. Uh, yeah. 
Now, one of my musical heroes is Lou Reed, and and you write at first that you didn't get him at all, which I, I think a lot of people have that experience. He can certainly be a difficult guy to get to know. What was it that unlocked something in Lou Reed that you guys were able to connect as artists? Yeah, I saw the Velvet Underground at the Whiskey when they first came out, and, uh, you know, it was kind of rough. East Coast, uh, dark streets and uh, but then I got into the words and realized he's looking for the humanity and all these crazy junkies and prostitutes and the whole thing. And, and I think that New York album is a masterpiece. I mean, he takes on everything possible, you know, the whales and uh, climate change, whatever it is, and he makes it work. Now, reading all the, the wonderful things you wrote about Rayman Zarek, talking about him being of two minds, which you'd have to be, to play bass with the left hand, keyboards with the right. As as a drummer, how were you able to lock into both parts of that? Like, you're a tight rhythm section, yet you kind of have to let it go through some, some keyboard improvisation. That's, that's a unique challenge. Yeah, he had the ability to split his mind into two musicians. And his left hand and me was the rhythm section, the bass and drums. And uh, we jammed on some Miles Davis tunes when we first met. And then I, I knew right away that we had the same feel, which is really important because it's the foundation. And then Robbie and Jim laid on top. And then it was it was really thought-provoking reading that it was the music of John Coltrane. And specifically, you had a conversation with Elvin Jones about Coltrane that enabled you to lock in artistically with Jim Morrison to reach the musician inside Jim. What was there in the essence of Coltrane that kind of helped you open that door? Well, Alvin kept the beat and that's the job of the drummer, the first job, but then they sort of battle it out together. And I don't know, I'm keeping the beat. And then Jim sings, what have they done to the earth? What have they done to our fair sister? Stuck her with knives in the side of the dawn, tied her with fences, dragged her down. And I found myself, doing that, you know, kind of uh, mimicking everything he was saying. Then I went back to the beat. Um, I think that came from Elvin and Coltrane. And I think it's interesting, and I don't know if, if a lot of drummers would feel that way, but I feel like you were trying to, to play along with the lyrics as much as you were with uh, with the rest of the band. Yeah, Um uh, Texas radio and the big beat, I literally play the melody, you know, rather than just play two and four like a drummer would right. do. Yeah. Is there something about the connection you experience between artists that can withstand almost anything? You write about Van Morrison kind of kind of screwing you over, embarrassing you at, at a gig where you're supposed to sit in on drums, that you couldn't listen to his music for a while, but then... It just it just seeps in, and you had to appreciate it. Is there an unbreakable artist connection for you on some level? Well, yeah. After a few months of turning the radio off when I heard Van Morrison, I left it on when I heard We Were Born Before the Wind, also younger than the sun, and the Bonnie Boat is one as we sail into the mystic. That's sheer genius. It's uh, and it seems like you have uh, you relate to that more. Obviously, the lyrics of Jim Morrison are more like poetry. Poetry seems to have more of of a jazz connection. Is that where it all comes together for you? That made it, that made your band so unique. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, when I first met Ray, he introduced me to Jim, who was the shy guy in the corner, and he said, Jim had never sang, but he's our singer. I said, okay, all right, Ray. <laughs> and then he gives me this crumpled piece of paper, and it says, uh, day destroys the night, night divides the day, tried to run, tried to hide, break on through to the other side. And I'm like, wow, I hear drums already. And is that a special thing when you hear a drum beat, not necessarily from a rhythm, from a chord progression, but you are hearing a drum beat immediately from lyrics? That's that's fascinating to me. Yeah, and and now that I'm a, a writer, I'm I'm thinking that the length of a, a sentence is a musical question. So if it's short, then it's kind of percussive, and if it's long, it's it's melodic, or too long, and you better edit. And I could talk to you about drumming forever, but I know you have a busy schedule today. It is The Seekers. That's a brand new book by my guest, John Densmore. John, it's been an honor to talk to you, and thank you so much for calling in today. Great talking to you. 